Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Last week, we looked at the question of how men are to pray, and this week, we go back and we read that verse and we enter into instructions that the Apostle Paul is giving to women. So men are to pray with holy hands lifted to God in unity, not fighting with one another, And then we also looked at last week how the women are to adorn themselves and to pray with modesty. So Paul is an apostle. And that's where we've got to start with this passage uh, because... We're, we're entering into the kind of stuff that's so hairy in our culture that so, it's so offensive that we've got to make sure we understand what we're getting into from the beginning and see whether or not it matters what this guy wrote, right? And, and of course, it's in the Bible because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit Paul is an apostle speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ that God gave to him. And it's one of the letters that God has chosen to pass down to his people forever that he promises not one word of it will pass away. And so it's eternally true. That's amazing. And that means that we need to remember that as we go into it and not be looking from the beginning to try to figure out how to get out from underneath it. Now, it just so happens that this particular passage is mostly to women. There are other passages, in fact, an awful lot of passages that are mostly to men. And we need the same kind of reminder often, especially when we're talking about manhood. Now here we're talking about womanhood. And so what I want you to realize is that, yes, it it sounds crazy to the world today, but this truth is in the context of Paul trying to establish unity, and peace in the church. And so I want you to see that if we embrace this as the body of Christ, this truth, that it will have that same fruit that Paul is looking for in the church at Ephesus. That there would be real unity and peace in the body of Christ. So let's read this now. From 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to read verses 8 through 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 8. 
Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, the, the words that we just read, if you were to hear them for the first time, you might be shocked by them, right? In our culture, the Bible is not totally forgotten, though. And so people still have this sort of memory in our culture that <clears throat> Christians believe something about man and woman, about sexuality. And, and essentially what it's come to mean is that since the world has turned its back on what the Bible teaches and what God has established from the beginning for man and woman, what it means is that The world looks at the Bible and says, well, I know there's a bunch of sexist stuff in there. I know that it, that it's just a product of the patriarchy. I know that, uh, that we've evolved past that. And so, uh, and so I can just dismiss it. But then there's this whole group of people who want to believe the Bible, want to claim that they're Christians, want to say that they're following God, and they know that this passage is here, but what they want to do is they want to defang it or declaw it. They want to make it so that it's not dangerous, so that it's not hard, so that it doesn't hurt. And here's, here's the shocker, okay? You get to the end of this passage, and God himself, through the Apostle Paul, gives women who are uh, feeling a lot of pressure under this a a little bit of a a relief valve, this this pressure relief. And it's it's that very pressure relief that we find most offensive today. So the very thing that's meant to be a consolation to women in this passage is what our society finds most claw-ish, fang-ish about the text. And that one thing is verse 15, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. 
Now, I'm going to come back to that at the end. But I want you just to realize from the very beginning that that is meant to be a consolation. That's meant to be the thing that, you know, in spite of all of this sort of hard stuff that's just been given, cheer up, there's verse 15 at the end. And so if if we as a culture find that to be the worst part, or no consolation, let's just leave it at, that's no consolation, then we're, we're so totally turned on our heads, we're so totally turned around in our understanding of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what, what the beauty of that is, that we don't, we can't even, we can't even receive that joyful consolation at the end. And so there's, there's not going to be anything in here for us that we're going to be willing to say is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness, which is what we know all of Scripture is, right? Profitable for those things. So let's go back now, and let's think about the context as we come to this instruction to women. The immediate context is Paul talking about prayer. The immediate context, Paul is talking about prayer. And yet, the instructions that he gives, the, the commands that he gives, don't make any sense if we try to somehow limit them to talking only about prayer. Right? What, what sorts of things? Well, uh, good works. You can do a little bit of good works in prayer, but if a woman is to adorn herself with good works as opposed to with pearls and gold and so forth, right? That's not talking about during prayer so much. It's talking about the rest of life. And it's the same as you go through this. There are several things, but, but the context still is him talking about prayer. If we remember that he's talking about prayer, then that context also brings to mind another place where Paul speaks of men and women and prayer. Where else does Paul speak of men, women, and prayer? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we normally read the end of it when we celebrate communion, right? That's what I always read. But I, what I receive from the Lord, that which, you remember that, right? That's, that's the end of chapter 11. But at the beginning of chapter 11, Paul is talking about prayer and men and women. And what we see is that there's some overlap in the things that he says topically. So in 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to go back there and read a couple of verses to you as I go through this. But in both 
1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, prayer and authority are connected together in the same in the same place into this into the context. Okay, so here's <clears throat> here's what we've got in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So that's, that's speaking of authority, right? And then if you go back a few verses... What are we talking about? Verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. So, you see, he starts out, he's talking about prayer. And and then he says that it's to be, that he brings authority into it somehow. So, prayer... And man and woman and authority are mixed up together. Both in this 1 Corinthians passage and in Timothy. Where did we see it in Timothy? Well, because the context is, verse 8, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, right? And then, verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Weird, huh? You... Something about praying and authority and relationships, they go together. Now, there's another place where prayer and authority and and relationship between the sexes come together, and it talks about men. Well, of course, in 1 Corinthians it talks about men, and in 1 Timothy it talks about men. In 1 Corinthians, it says that the man who prays with his head covered is shaming himself. But do you remember when a man's prayers are hindered? So that your prayers will not be hindered? Do you remember where it says that? And what what does it say? Nope. No. What it says is it brings up his wife. Yeah, read it. First Peter three, what was that? Seven? Seven. First Peter three, seven. It talks all about how the man is to live with his wife in an understanding way so that his prayers will not be hindered. And so no matter whether you're talking about men or women, the moment you begin talking about prayer, there's something about authority 
involved in approaching God, coming to God in prayer. You've got the woman being instructed to come to God in a certain way with regard to her relationship to her husband. She's supposed to come to God in prayer submissively to human relations. And likewise, men are to come to God in prayer, exercising their authority in a a particular way, right? So that their prayers will not be hindered. So that they will not bring shame. So they are to have no covering. The woman is to have covering on her head. All of this is related to authority, and and it brings you to prayer. And so here we've got Paul's talking to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, and he's talking to us, and he's saying, here's how I want you to pray. And then he starts talking to the women about how they're supposed to live their lives and how they're supposed to behave in church in this way that's underneath authority. And it's like, what does that have to do with prayer? What does that have to do with prayer? Well, what it shows us is that we don't come to God individually without regard to our relationships to other people. Does that make sense? Because he who hates his brother does not, cannot love God. And so you can't, you can't be living in rejection of all of the way that God has made you to be and the commands that he has given you and then come to him in prayer and expect that somehow it won't make any difference and that you'll just be able to come to him. You see this? And one of the most fundamental areas where this is true is in our relations between men and women, between husbands and wives, and then how men and how women are to live and, and, and interact within the church. So prayer and authority are connected in both places. Also in both places, prayer and teaching are connected. Now this, this will make sense when you, when you think about how closely connected teaching and authority are. Teaching and authority really can't be separated from one another because you cannot teach without authority. But let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 11.5. Again, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying. Disgraces. Prophesying is teaching. Okay? Um, And then in, in our passage in Timothy, of course, you have verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So what's going on? Well, prayer and teaching are connected to each other. And part of the reason is because prayer 
and authority are connected to each other. You know, one of the things that we're told not to do is, uh, you know, not to try to instruct while praying. I don't know if you guys have ever uh, been in a situation where somebody was praying at you rather than with you, trying to tell you something through their prayer instead of, it's a passive-aggressive way of dealing with conflict and so forth, right? Well, what I, I want you to see that it's possible for us to instruct in inappropriate ways, and this will affect our prayer, right? That's just one example, but it's an example where, you know, um, prayer and teaching are connected to each other, and prayer is instructive, It does teach us. It teaches us how to interact with God, and and we are to learn through it. But if we don't have unity, and that's something that Paul is um, focused on also in both of these passages, unity is central to his goal, unity in the church. Okay, If we don't have the kind of unity, if we don't have the right understanding of how men and women are to interact with each other, we won't have unity. And if we don't have that unity, then when we come to pray, there will be passive-aggressive sniping going on during prayer. Well, that's awful, right? And what's going on there? I mean, it's one thing for... uh, there There was somebody in our small group a number of years ago who would tell stories during prayer and uh, while she was praying in particular. And, th- and it was very hard to know what to do with that because it was, it was inappropriate, okay, to uh, after, <laughs> after having taken prayer requests, then to, to try to take the time that should be devoted to God and instead to try to tell a story to the small group. You see that there's a problem going on there, right? And so it's inappropriate, but how are you supposed to deal with it when somebody is covering their, uh, their inappropriate behavior with prayer? Now, there's all kinds of ways of covering inappropriate behavior with prayer, right? You can gossip. That's one way of telling, you know, that's one kind of story that you can tell during prayer. You can be gossiping and, and, and just put this holy covering on it. Well, this is totally the opposite of what Paul is talking about here. In fact, it's one of the things that he's trying to prevent. He's trying to prevent using prayer in a divisive manner to to, uh, separate people from one another. Prayer is supposed to be united. The body of Christ comes together to pray, and it does so under the authority of God. It does so seeking to do God's will, putting his will first. And so it comes down 
And it's passed to men, and then from men to women, this authority. And if we reject that, then what we are doing is we're rejecting the united principle that we have in coming to God as one body. And we end up, we end up with uh, all sorts of problems in the church the moment that we do that. So division is going to be one of the first things that you're going to see when women are unwilling to be modest and want to go to God in prayer in order to accomplish something to raise themselves up. So they can be wanting to raise themselves up in opposition to other women to make themselves look better through gossiping, right? And they can also be wanting to raise themselves up simply to make themselves appear quite holy. It doesn't have to be about anybody else, but to be about impressing others. And of course, we know that men can do this too, right? Trying to be impressive in their prayers and trying to stand out as amazing people, amazing men. Well, Paul's looking for unity here. And so what he says to the men is, all y'all raise your hands in, and, and not fighting with one another. You're not in competition when you come to God in prayer, right? You, you come without wrath, without dissension. And women, be modest. And by the way, that also means that you're not going to be teaching and you're not going to be exercising authority because to do that is not just to be fighting and dividing amongst one another, but it's to, it's to go against the very order of creation, the way that God made man and woman to be from the beginning. And so, this is, this is a theme with Paul. That unity is to be sought in the body of Christ in part by properly understanding what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and then appropriately seeking those things. And so the moment that we, the moment that we reject those things and we begin to kick against the way that he has made us, what ends up happening is that there end up being these divisions that come into the body of Christ immediately. Okay? And one of the ways that these divisions come in is when we, uh, we fall into sexual sin because of rejecting the difference between men and women and how God has created us. Now, as an example of this, you know that uh, Mike Pence has been mocked for saying that he follows the Billy Graham rule. Now, do you, do you know what the Billy Graham rule is? The Billy Graham rule is him saying that he's not going to eat alone or, or meet alone with any woman or ride in a car alone with any woman besides his wife, right? And why is that? 
Well, the reason is because he doesn't want there to be any occasion for falling into sin. And so what is going on there is that he's recognizing that men and women are made a certain way and that there's certain kinds of temptations and there are certain dangers that we need to avoid and there are certain appearances of evil that we need to avoid. And so it's wonderful. It's sweet. It's practical. But if we reject that and if we say men need to be able to do this, Women need to be allowed to to be able to be platonic friends with men and to be able to uh, travel alone with them and and ride in cars alone with them and meet alone with them and spend time alone with them uh, without there being any danger. Okay, To say that is to reject the way that God made us. Because men and women are made, ultimately, to come together. And so, if we in the church begin to reject that, and we go along with mocking or criticizing Mike Pence and others who are following this rule, what we will be left with is disunity. And where will that disunity come from? Well, part of that disunity will come immediately in the form of dividing husband and wife through adultery. Do you see how how simple that is? How immediately straightforward it is? And how obvious it is that this is what happens. We know what we are, and we know our sinful nature. And you bring both of those things together, Right, And if you deny either of those things and pretend like it's not real, then you're going to fall into sin, and then that sin will poison the body. There won't be unity in the church when there's adultery in the church. Is this obvious? Right? There, there's going to be real problems with coming together in unity, and there not being wrath and dissension among the men who are supposed to be raising holy hands in prayer. And there won't be unity among the women, will there? Now, believe it or not, there are those in the church today who are Reformed and, and conservative and claim to believe the truth about men and women and so forth who actually mock this principle. And what's, what I want you to see is they're absolutely going against this passage because what they're doing is they're denying creation. They're denying that men and women are made a certain way and they're denying the fall. And what Paul does is he bases his his argument his reason for saying these things in those two things. Number one, because man was made first and then woman. And number two, because the woman was deceived and not the man. And so, 
He takes both of those things and he brings them forward to today and says they're still true. They still have an effect. And all I'm doing is now, you don't see in this passage it saying anything about um, about men and women and platonic relationships and spending time with, in, in a car with one another, right? But I'm simply taking those same two things and applying them forward and saying that when, we, when man fell, mankind, right, we received a sinful nature and that still affects us the same way that the fact that, that Eve was the one who was deceived still affects women and the same way that the fact that men and women, man was created first and then woman, right? The same way when we say that woman is made to be man's helper, that still has an effect, that still comes into play in how we're made and what we're, and, and what we desire. So I'm just taking it and I'm, I'm taking those same two base principles and I'm applying them a little bit further in slightly different areas. When I say, Mike Pence, I want, you know, I want to say he's brilliant <laughs> for following this rule. But actually, he, it's not brilliance. It's just, it's just the, like the, if you understand the very first things, the very most basic things about men and women, as God has revealed to us in his word and revealed to us in creation, you know this is true. And so it's not just Christians who know this and who seek to follow it. There are all kinds of men today who wish that they had followed it, who aren't Christians, not even close, right? And yet their lives are ruined because they didn't follow Billy Graham's simple principles of like, hey, we should recognize that there's a difference between men and women and that there's temptations because of our original sin that go together. And they go together in particularly bad ways to ruin lives, to destroy marriages, to cause disunity and and all kinds of harm. Right? And so when then you come to him talking about modesty in the church of God and amongst women in particular, is it, is it fine for me to say that this has to do with men? You, you know what I'm saying? Am I, am I allowed to say This has to do with men. Women dress modestly. Why? Well, because, you know, men. (laughs) But Paul doesn't say, well, you know, because men. Paul says, because we're going for unity, people. You don't want to blow everything up. You don't want to destroy lives. You want to build the church. You want there to be unity. So 1 Corinthians 
talks about prayer and dress. That women are to have a covering on their heads as they come to pray. And 1 Timothy talks all about how women are to dress as well in the context of prayer, right? And in both places, church unity is central to Paul's goal in instruction. Again, 1 Corinthians 11.18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. This is immediately after him talking about how men and women are to come to God in prayer. And then he says what it looks like, and it doesn't really have much to do, obviously, with men and women. But he says, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. He says, for verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So he talks about other kinds of divisions that come up, and the lack of love and unity in the body. But he's just gotten done talking about prayer and the unity that must come through prayer by men and women rightly understanding what it means that they're men and that they're women. So like I said, Paul has this theme. Whenever he begins to talk about men and women, you begin to see him going back to the very first principles and saying, remember that man was made first and then woman. And that has application to us today. That has application. We we learn from that certain things about how we're to act, how we're to behave. And remember why the woman was made, to be a helper to the man. And then also remember that she was deceived. Now, why would we remember that she was deceived unless it still meant something for us today? We wouldn't. He wouldn't remind us of it unless it mattered, right? As a matter of fact, it matters so much that he says this is... One of the reasons that a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, remember what I said before at the beginning that the most offensive verse here is chapter 15, I mean, is verse 15, that women will be preserved through the bearing of children. I think the most obviously offensive verse is verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Because it's just like, uh, but what do you mean exactly by that, Paul? Right? (laughs) Isn't that our first inclination? But, okay, I mean, I think I understand kind of where you're going with that, Paul, and, but, but you don't actually mean that, right? Remember that the most evangelistic truths are the ones that are the most shocking to people in your context, in your culture. 
and practice. Remember, remember that I've said in the past that the most evangelistic words that we can practice saying are yes and no to questions like, well, do you actually believe that women are supposed to be quiet in church? And, and you, have to, you have to practice saying it because it's so hard in our culture to say, yes, yes. And why is it hard? Because you know what they're going to say. Pfft, stupid. Stupid, sexist, patriarchal idiot. Male chauvinist pig. And, and if you're a woman and you say it, the insults are going to be even worse. Poor you. Poor you. That's what they'll say, right? I'm so sorry that you're so misled as to even think that this is something that you like or that's good. Don't you know that God is a God who frees us from bondage. But how is the woman to behave in worship according to Paul, according to the Holy Spirit, according to God our Father, modestly, quietly receiving instruction, Entirely submissive. And how is she not to behave? The opposite. Immodest dress, seeking to teach, seeking to exercise authority, being loud, drawing attention to herself. Why? Well, we've just gotten done going back to it, right? We see it both in 1 Corinthians and here. The unity of the church is at stake when we go against the way that God made us as men and women, when we reject what he has done. And even the the non-Christian world can see in creation and accurately identify the way that men and women are made and made to be different. And this is part of the appeal of Jordan Peterson and other men like him who are willing to simply say, hey, men and women are different. Are we willing to say it? Now that's, that's one thing, to say men and women are different. But then, to, to take the next step and to say, therefore, and to apply it into an ought, therefore, men ought to do this, therefore, women ought to do that, Right? That's a whole different ball game. And even Jordan Peterson isn't willing to do that. 
He'll, he'll say, you know, for most people, this is the path to happiness. But if you're different, then you pursue your dreams and go after whatever makes you happy and, and go for it. Be different. And he'll give you a little bit of a warning and say, you know, but beware if that's actually, you know, that might not actually be the path to happiness. It's not actually the path to happiness for most people. And what God says is, women are to be this way. Because that's the way that I made them. It's, and, and how do you, and how do you know? Well, because remember I said in the beginning, that they were to be a helper. Remember I said, in, remember in the beginning I made the man and then I made the woman? Well, what does that have to do with anything? It means that they're to be led by the man. And that has the exact same meaning in the church. They're to be led by the men. Well, yeah, but now we don't live in the garden anymore and the husband isn't perfect anymore. In fact, he's abusive. He's manipulative. He's emotionally absent. He's terrible. You can't seriously mean, and, and, and have you seen the pastors? They're committing adultery and they're doing all this other stuff. Should the women actually be quiet? Should they actually be submissive? I think the fall changed all of this. And he says, no, it's not only because man was made first and then a woman. It's also because she was deceived. It's also because of the fall and how it went down. So no matter how you spin it, you can go to say, well, before the fall, it wasn't like this. And he says, no, actually it was. He was made first. And you say, well, after the fall then, surely it can't still be like this. Actually, it still is. You see that? And so, although we're talking about worship, we're talking about in the church, we're talking about prayer. The reason that women are instructed this way is not based in worship, but in something more fundamental about man and woman, about women in particular. <clears throat> and so what do we learn? Well, we learn that women have a weakness in some way. That they're meant to be led. And the strong lead the weak. And men are stronger and women are weaker. And that's hard. That's hard for us to swallow today as men. It's hard for us to swallow today as women. And it was hard for them to swallow it back when the Apostle Paul was writing it. And it was hard for Eve to swallow when God said it to her as part of the curse. It's always been hard. And so that's why 
when God gave the curse, he also gave the consolation that a child would be born, a son would come from the seed of the woman. That's the consolation. Yeah, childbirth is gonna it's gonna be terrible now. But there will come a son. That's the consolation. And then Paul does the same thing here. He says, What? But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Isn't that interesting? Birth. Women giving birth is mentioned as something that mitigates what was already said in the text about women's condition. So how does it mitigate it? Well, it gives hope that their condition isn't hopeless. Remember, back at the garden, it would have seemed very hopeless if it wasn't for the fact that there would be birth. There would be the seed of man and woman. It's not ending right now with death for our sin. Man still has woman. And not just for a little while, but long enough to have children. And women know that they're weak, and yet they will be strong and brought through childbearing. And their hope will come through that. And this refers to Jesus going back to Eve. But remember, Paul's writing after Jesus was born, raised, And died. And so he's talking about more than just that. He's saying, Yeah, but but you've been given the gift of raising children into the faith. And what a glorious gift that is. That's the most countercultural element of the passage. It's the thing that really has teeth more than anything else. Because we've turned aside from children being a blessing, and so we've turned aside from this promise being anything beneficial, any sort of mitigation. And yet what I want you to realize is that when we reject this, when we deny this fact, all of these facts about men and women, and about women in particular, we're not somehow getting smarter We don't have any understanding of why it's so sad to women when they are barren until we understand that this verse is a consolation. Right? We don't have... And, and, and this... We don't have any understanding why... Women can say their whole life, my goal is to be this 
glorious professional woman who's totally independent, leads and isn't led, doesn't have any fear about anything, because I can provide for myself, thank you very much, and yet why they're drawn back to actually, I don't want to run out of time to have a baby. What? We shouldn't be shocked at that. It's what God says right here. It's a beautiful thing. It's what gives her hope. It's that fundamental to what a woman is. It's why barrenness is such a heartbreaking thing. It's why marriage goes on generation after generation after generation because God said this is the way it's going to be. And if we simply embrace that, we'll have truths to speak that are evangelistic. We'll have truths to speak that are filled with hope. That we can say, the Lord will restore the years that the locusts have eaten to a culture that has totally given itself over to saying, but we love the locust. You're lying through your teeth. What you love is children. And what you need is a man who will lead you in love and who will not reject his work. Just like you need to stop rejecting your work. Yeah, that's, that's shocking to say, right? But if we don't say it, the only other option is to deny reality. And this is what feminism does. And I remember when I was an RA being trained that they gave us over to the Women's Studies Department for a little while at Vanderbilt to train us uh, in avoiding victim blaming. And the, the training in particular was that we should never warn a girl not to go out running late at night downtown Nashville with skimpy clothes on for fear that a man might grab them and do something terrible to them. We should never, ever, 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 ever hint at warning them against that. Because that would be victim-blaming to the, peop- the, to the girls that have done that and something bad has happened to them as though we're making it out to be their fault. And then they, would, then they went on to say, women should be able to go out running without any fear of man. They must be able to go out running without any fear of man. Therefore, don't say anything. Don't warn. It has to change. And what they're saying is, reality has to change. We deny reality. 
You see that? We reject reality, we deny reality, and it's the same thing that some Christians today are doing when they, when they mock Mike Pence and then they mock Billy Graham. And they say, we deny, we reject. Men and women must be able to spend all kinds of time together without there being any fear of there being any kind of attraction or any kind of thing, anything inappropriate happening between them. That must be the way that it is. But it's a rejection of what God has said from the beginning in the way that he's made us. And it's also a rejection of the fall. So just like Paul goes back to prior to the fall and looks at the curse and after the fall and says, all of these things come together and say the same thing about women. So those who reject it, reject it before, after, and during the curse. And they say, no, we, we reject it. We deny it. We, we, we don't believe in that reality. But they're just closing their eyes and plugging their ears and going, la, 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 la. And so we as Christians, we come and, and we have this, this thing to confront them with. And this thing that we're confronting them with is as obvious and real and hard as the ground that we're standing on. It's that fundamental. And it's beautiful because it's hopeful to a culture that is saying women need to be able to uh, not, not wear anything in the movies and then not have any fear about the director. You say, no, stop it. That's not reality. You're giving yourself to a dream and it's going to end up disastrously. Right? And then Christians are going, well, women need, and men need to be able to spend all kinds of time alone together in private, in cars and in rooms and so forth and traveling together and, and there not to be any fear of any... No, stop it! No, look. The ground, gravity, the sky, do you see it? You trip, you fall. It hurts. It's like that with men and women. They're made this way. And so, so don't deny it. Embrace it. It's true. It's beautiful. It's good. And also, babies. Isn't that happy? And it is. It's happy. Well, it's happy if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Otherwise, babies outside of wedlock, it's sad, isn't it? But give yourself to this, and what you get is the gift of children. That's such a sweet thing. Let's pray.